Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Fernita, how are you? Good, how are you today? I'm doing well. The sun is shining, which is always good. And, uh, you know, we're past the meeting of the Electoral College, so, you know, well, that's under our const- exciting. Yeah, I know. It's uh, usually don't have to think about it, but uh, Senator Mitch McConnell congratulated President elect Biden. I think that was appropriate milestone in the process uh, for uh, for political reasons, but also I thought it was um, Senator McConnell's acknowledgement that under the Constitution, the Electoral College is the election, and so once the election took place in his mind, he was ready to say it was done. Yes, um, although I have to be honest, I'm not uh, too excited about congratulating him for doing something he should have done weeks ago. Um, <laughs> the, the meeting of the electors uh, is usually not that significant in terms of our political discourse. It just is this year because the president hasn't been telling the truth about the election and we've had a lot of litigation. And so um, probably like most people, I was glued to the TV um, on December 14th because I had never even, you know, watched or given a thought really to the meeting of the electors. You know, it just really seemed pro forma in pro forma in prior elections, um, in part because, you know, once we have a declared winner, um, even in a, a close election, even if it's not official, most people just acquiesce to that. So in 2016, um, you know, that was a very close election, but uh, Clinton conceded the race and, and life moved on. So uh, we just live in a different world now. So, so part of me, um, I think McConnell, although he did ultimately do the right thing, I, you know, for me, he should have done it when Pennsylvania was called four days after the election. Yeah. Um... I agree and disagree at the same time, if I can, sure. uh, in part because I think we have this dual track understanding of our electoral process. And, um, you know, I, I think I've said before, and but but want to reiterate, I thought President George Bush did the right thing the day after the networks called, you know, the race that Saturday. We got called for Biden um, because of Pennsylvania, like you said, and the networks all said we've got a president-elect and then ex-president bush congratulated and he called biden president-elect but he did go on and say there could be recounts and there could even be litigation he but what i thought was great about his tone was he said i don't expect the litigation to change the outcome and i think then americans will um you know once the process really does become official americans will be able to be really happy uh, that they had a free, fair, and you know, sound election. So, you know, it was a perfectly written statement, as from my my perspective. And I think Senator Connell could have done the same thing, and he chose not to. You know, the next day on that Monday, he gave a speech that emphasized the fact that the networks play no official role in the process. The legal system will have a winner at the appropriate time, but that includes recounts and possible lawsuits. Um, and so, <laughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so the McConnell sort of emphasized one half of our duality without the other half. 
um, which I think was unfortunate and, and has led to some problems that we can talk about. But on the other hand, you know, he, the half that he emphasized was true, and he never himself embraced the Trumpian conspiracy theories. He simply was silent on that, which allowed them to fester, unfortunately. Um, so maybe we're in the same place in that we're both glad that Senator McConnell did what he did this week. One way, one I reason I'm particularly glad for it is, is that reporting. if he hadn't done it, right? I mean, there are other senators still, like Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who's saying, I'm waiting for January 6th. You know, the process is not over yet. Senator Rand Paul, a little bit. So there are other significant political figures, um, you know, uh, who, who did not do this week what Senator McConnell did. And even if you think it was late, it was better that it was coming now than not now. Uh, and until we as a society better understand this duality, um, you know, he was sort of within his rights to wait as long as he did. And at least he did what he did. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm get willing to give him a little bit more credit than than you are. And Absolutely. Because, I, <laughs> um, I, you know, honestly, Ned, uh, was he in his rights? You know, he is the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate. <laughs> um, what he says matters and the emphasis matters, right? So if he's emphasizing recounts and litigation, um, to me, that's a problem, especially when there was no evidence even early on of any serious malfeasance that would have called the election outcome into question. Um, so this notion that, you know, of course, pending recounts and litigation, that emphasis is, it leaves room for uh, conspiracy theories to fester. And I do think that that is a, um, you know, very irresponsible on his part. Uh, in part because, you know, the, the emphasis on litigation in presidential elections, prior to 2000, our conversation about this would have been completely different, right? Like, we don't really want courts to be involved in this if we can avoid it. Uh, yet the Republican Party has turned to the courts in part because their strategy over the last four years had been to, you know, fill as many judicial spots as possible, which is well within their rights. But let's understand that that is part of the reason for the emphasis. Um, and, and in reality, our, our system is one in which, you know, serious court involvement in resolving presidential disputes is a fairly recent vintage. Right. So I, so I do think he's being deliberate and he's being intentional. He's leaving room for um, the president to not necessarily disagree with him, right? Um, and that's a problem because the president is wrong here. He's pushing a theory about this election that's simply not true, and McConnell's statement leaves room for that theory. And to me, uh, as an elected official, he could have been more responsible, and he could have been more responsible a long time ago. Yes, well, I, I, I agree with that. And clearly, the, the, I think we agree that the primary blame belongs to President Trump, who is, you know, participant in manufacturing this outrageous conspiracy theory. And no president of the United States should be doing what, um, what President Trump is. I mean, you know, I was, um, you know, uh, participating in a discussion uh, that Ohio State uh, had yesterday, which I know, unfortunately, you were not able to attend as much as we wanted you to be there. Um, but uh, one point that came out of that conversation, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is, uh, you know, and I'm, this, I'm sort of summarizing what was a longer discussion, but, the, but in essence, you know, President Trump was sort of like having Senator Joe McCarthy of McCarthyism ending up winning the White House and perpetrating McCarthyism like, um, you know, 
demagoguery with based on fabrications, you know, from the White House, which we didn't have before. Um, you know, I, I, I hadn't, hadn't ever put it quite that way, and, 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 and it was other people on the panel who sort of made that particular point, but uh, that's dangerous, you know, to have anything like that happening out of the White House is just... It's terrifying. You know, yeah. Um, but it's also so, an important reminder. I love that. I love that analogy in part because it reminds us that it is possible for the levers of government to fall into the hands of someone who's a demagogue, right? Somebody who peddles in conspiracy theories. I think prior to 2016, um, we had a romanticized view of the presidency. Even when, you know, you have presidents that who are elected who you don't agree with, you can disagree with them on policy. Um, and so I do think the last four years introduced us to something that goes beyond policy disagreement in a way that we weren't ready to grapple with. And so I love the analogy, um, in part because it reminds us that, um, you know, being president is more than just policy disagreements. You really, you know, character matters. And it's so funny because um, I didn't used to put a ton of stock in character, like a ton of thought, you know, like I, I saw it, it was sort of the recognition that it's important. Uh, but also there are things that are more important. Uh, I, you know, for me going forward, character is not really taking a back seat anymore. You know, mm -hmm. I am going to, you know, cause it, it, what the president says, what the president does, it actually does matter, um, in a way that I think I had underappreciated, uh, prior to the last four years. And so part of the reason is, is that that character does influence how the president uses his power, which is something that. Uh, the answer to that is, of course, of course it does, right? But, you know, some of our prior presidents, I think, in some ways, were quite run-of-the-mill, right? They were reflective of their party, for the most part, whereas Trump, I mean, he clearly moved the Republican Party in ways that I don't even think Republicans expected the party to move. And part of it, uh, and part of the move um, reflects sort of the absence of character. Um, and he's taken the party with him. And so given the fact that he is um, still nominally the head of the Republican Party, he's planning to run again in 2024, a substantial portion of the United States agrees with him. Um, and even more so, a substantial portion of the United States idolizes him. So what do we do with that in terms of thinking about the future of this country? Um, and I think that's the struggle for me. But it personally, it, it also was a lesson in sort of not forgetting the importance of character when we talk about electing people to the highest office in the land. I completely agree with that point about character. Um, and I, I'm inclined to wish that Senator McConnell had handled this differently for reasons we've discussed. But I also wonder whether we... You know, for somebody, if we believe that Senator McConnell wants a Republican Party that is not a Trumpian party, um, and that there is a version of there is there there is a fight now for what the future of the Republican Party is between you know two different wings of it, which neither which is the Democratic Party, obviously, and so neither of which is going to be a progressive party, but you know, from my judgment, there's a vast difference for the health of our country if the other party of the two-party system is on the one hand, you know, full-on Trumpian McCarthyism, like, you know, paranoid psychosis kind of denial of reality party, that's not good, versus, you know, a, a more traditional Republican party that is business-oriented and um, anti-regulation and, and mm -hmm. you know, which I think is McConnell sort of fits that 
that mold. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so I, I think, you know, McConnell is trying to remove, to maneuver his party to a post-Trumpian future when Trump is not wanting to give up. And, you know, Trump is wanting to keep his own self in the game. He may run again, as you said, but he, but he, he still would like his legacy to be a Trumpian legacy as opposed to a traditional Republican Party legacy. So I've read in a couple of places, I'd be curious as to your thought on this, that that um, the the best way to slay the McCarthyism type quality of, of what's gone on is to allow the litigation to run its course. This is a point that Sam Zakharoff, uh, an election law scholar in our community, made at one point. And then I saw an article in the Atlantic magazine that I can't remember the author, but it was like, each and maybe the New Yorker. I mean, every time Trump loses in court, it's another defeat. And so um, there's just been the drumbeat of you're wrong. You know, this is crazy conspiracy theory again after again after together. I mean, there is a fringe group, and unfortunately, it's larger than I'd like it to be, to believe who accepts this you know crazy Venezuela attack the voting machines kind of thing. But but it might have been even more taking hold within the consciousness of the Republican Party if it hadn't been for the thoroughness with which it was repudiated at the Supreme Court, at the Third Circuit, by all the Trump-appointed judges. And, and, and so McConnell can say, look, I gave you every chance. You know, I, I did not, in fact, by me staying silent for this month, I did not try to steer the public conversation against you, President Trump, you know, if, if you hanged yourself with your own rope here, <laughs> I did not help, you know, hang you or, or stick a knife in your back. So, um, you know, this one's on you. I get that. So I think that makes sense to me, but I am troubled in part because we, that assumes that there's no harm from the litigation being brought in the first place. And I'm not sure that that's right. Right. I, I do believe that the litigation has been harmful to our democratic structure. Right. It has oh, absolutely. In, right. Like, and, do, and we've talked about this. Right. But but to say let it run its course, um, you know, I think minimizes or sort of glosses over the fact that the litigation itself is harmful. And I do think it's important. And, and, and I mentioned this, um, if not on our podcast in another forum, that perhaps courts should consider sanctions. Like I know it's the presidential election. I know it's the president. And I know judges are probably like, God, I don't want to do that. But um, in thinking about how this has gone on for so long and, you know, and most of it has been baseless. I'm not even going to say most of it, Ned. Almost all of it. <laughs> right? Like, I think he's lost every case except one. Right? Um, and, and, and so I, I do think that, you know, the expressive message that comes from sanctioning the attorneys, I think that means something. I think that um, we, we're getting to a point where, ha- we, where we have to start restoring faith back into the system. Um, and allowing him to, to to continue to litigate and sort of making public statements, these these officials who are making public statements saying, you know, let's let the litigation play out, let's you know take all of these steps, it lends credence to this this sense that there's something wrong, right? It's um, causing smoke where there's no fire, uh, and so so I think that's my larger concern. And even more importantly, Ned, it feeds his ego, <laughs> right? They are still indulging him. And if you think about it, the fact that they've indulged him for four years is why we're in this position. Every controversy the president has had over the last four years 
Senate Republicans have sort of walked through the halls. They either haven't, they, either they don't have Twitter, even though we know they're on Twitter, they don't have social media, they ain't heard about it, they don't know nothing about it, they ignore it, no one has cracked down on him, which is why he thinks he can do all of these things, right? If, if some of this would have been nipped in the bud early on so that he understands, like, that he is a, 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 a larger character in our constitutional order and he, there are certain things he can't do, then perhaps we wouldn't be in a situation where he's still litigating a race that he clearly lost. What, how, how many weeks we're at now? Three, three and a half? <laughs> six, six <Right>. weeks, <laughs> I think. Uh, um, he's litigating a race that he clearly lost and they are indulging him in part because they didn't crack down four years ago. And so here we are. And this is completely corrosive and harmful in a way that I don't know how long it will take us to recover from. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, but I think I'm trying at least to, to, to test a, a slightly different point. That we, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but I think it's worth thinking about. I mean, I completely accept your premise that the lawsuits were bad and, and need to be called out. But, that's, but I also think McCarthyism is bad, right? I mean, in other words, the, the, the idea of having a demagogue doing what they do is horrific. And then the question is, how do you get rid of it? Yeah. And I don't think you can get rid of it simply by saying it's bad, because the, what's so awful about the pathology of McCarthyism is its capacity to perpetuate itself. McCarthyism lasted for four years. Mm -hmm. um, and you had, again, responsible, semi-responsible, I mean, you had establishment Republicans like Senator Robert Taft of the time, right. so-called Mr. Republican of the 50s. You had President Eisenhower. They hated McCarthy. They wanted to get rid of him, but they, he, he had captured public imagination, you know, because part of being a demagogue is charisma mm -hmm. and the relationship between this leader and the base. And, and, and even though they're, he's spouting lies and saying they're communists in the army and the State Department, none of which was true, he said he had lists that he never produced. Right. He was able to do that because of this, you know, complicated political dynamic with the constituency that the other members of the party felt like they couldn't stop them. Now, we could call them cowards. We could say that they that they should have stopped them. But they were all caught up in the mentality of, well, if if we try to fight him too much too soon, he's going to destroy us. And that's not going to be good for anybody. So we got to have that to is, keep that's here. That's cowardly to me, though, Ned. It really is cowardly. You know, it's it's, it's caring more about your political fortunes than you do about the country. How many people killed themselves because of McCarthy's wild accusations, right? How many people were blacklisted from certain industries because you know, of his, you know, labeling people broadly as communists and so on, right? He destroyed lives. He, um, yes, he captured the public imagination, but for all the wrong reasons, right? And at some point you have to ask yourself, particularly if you are an elected official, who do you want the country to be? If they didn't want the country to be McCarthy, then they had an obligation to speak out. Otherwise, you're complicit. So, yeah, I, and that doesn't mean it's, it's not hard. And it doesn't mean it doesn't cost you anything, right? If the, the Republican Party did not want to become the party of Trump, they should have spoke out a long time ago. They let it happen because they were more concerned about their political fortunes. That is cowardly. Because, and the reason, so let me, let me be clear, though. There are people who agree with him in the party, right? Elect, there are elected officials who believe that Trump's approach to governance, his approach to the world is the right one. Those are actually not the people I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about the people who tell reporters behind closed doors how much of a, you know, jerk they think Trump is. 
And then they, they refuse to publicly speak out about it, right? They malign him behind his back. They worry about what he's doing to the party, and then they do nothing publicly about it. Those are the people I'm actually talking about. The people who agree with Trump agree with Trump. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it was a hard decision that they refused to make because they wanted to be reelected. That's not right, good for the but, country. But, but suppose, and, I, and, I, and I totally think you're right to focus on them. And, and again, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate, not... No, please. Be, 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 I mean, you know, uh, suppose, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know this to be true about Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, but I could imagine that this be the case. So, you know, because I don't think he's Trumpian. I don't think he, he wants to be Trumpian. But I think he may be thinking to himself something like, you know, if I, if, if I publicly attack Trump, I am going to be very vulnerable to a primary. Um, because there is a huge Trumpian base within the um, Republican Party here in Ohio. And so, um, you know, and, and it's better for the, for the United States and better for Ohio to be represented by me, you know, even if I have to steer closer to Trumpianism than I would like to, I'm still always going to be less Trumpian than the, than the full-on Trumpians. So... You know, I, I mean, it is a Faustian bargain every step of the way, but it's like, okay, as long as I haven't, you know, gone all the way in, as long as I can see some distance between myself and the Trumpian side, it's better, you know, for me to corrupt myself um, than, it, than it is for me to uh, either do a Jeff Flake and just give up or, or, or stand up and say no to Trump and produce that that primary challenge. So yes, uh, you know, being in politics is, can be brutal to one's own, you know, psyche and, and sense of honor and conscience. But, uh, but, but it's, I think it's an attempt on his part to, to, to try to stay true to his character and his sense of morality in what he perceives to be a difficult position. Hmm. I don't even know how to respond to that, Ned. <laughs> I, you know, I don't. I don't think it, morality has has much to do with it, right? Like the the president says and does things that are clearly immoral, and for some reason, people discover their morality when they're not running for re-election. And that's the the tension for me, right? Do you, uh, you um, have, I mean, there was a Michigan congressman who quit the party because of mm-hmm. the election litigation, but oddly enough, and the, he's head not, of, the former head of the New Hampshire Republican Party just quit. I mean, that, yeah. that is a, you know, that, that, that is an option and maybe that's the better. But these the are better. people you, who are not running for re-election. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, I, w- I would be more inclined to believe the morality point if people actually had skin in the game, right? They make the decision. It's an easy decision to make when you don't have anything on the line. You can repudiate. Ned, why did Nixon leave? Well, <laughs> right. Nixon left because the the, the Republican people <laughs> told him that he w- he would be impeached if he didn't. Members of his own party told him he would be impeached if he didn't leave. Mm-hmm. Right. Nixon was the head of the Republican Party and he basically got fired. Right. Right. Where are those people? <laughs> Where are those people today? You know, well, maybe and, McConnell, and, may, you know, McConnell in some ways has told Trump, you're not, you're, you know, you're not winning this, right? I mean, if, now, maybe like, McConnell... It's a lot, Captain Obvious. Like, yes, we know, like, literally, we've been saying that, Ned, 
for over a month, right? right? Like, so for McConnell to say it, and this is why I can't give him credit. I'm like, he's just, he's chiming in where now it's, he feels like it's politically safe for him to do so. Well, you know, and I'm thinking ahead to this meeting on January 6th, which, you know, to to assure our um, our audience listeners that, you know, it, it there isn't going to be a coup. The coup is going to be no coup. If it's a t- no coup. It probably, you know, probably won't be attempted. And if it was attempted, it's going to fail. So we can all sleep um, easy. Uh, but I think the the theater of January 6th looks very differently whether McConnell is on the anti-Trump side versus the pro-Trump side. Um, because, you know, the, the Senate has a role and the House has a role. And, you know, if, if, if McConnell is agreeing with the Trumpians that Trump can try to, you know, derive from the arcane rules of the electoral process a second term that the voters didn't want to give him, which is what Representative Brooks seems to want to do, what Trump himself wants to do, what, you know, a few senators are toying with the idea. You know, if McConnell had put the weight of his caucus behind that move, then then the, the defense against the coup would have been, talk about, you know, courageous, it, it would have been just a handful of, of Republicans holding the line. Um, you know, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, right. Lisa Murkowski, um, when it's McConnell saying to Trump, it's over, that is now putting the full bipartisan weight of the Senate against any shenanigans or, or crazy ideas. And, 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 and that's a, a, a fundamentally different political dynamic, which is healthier for the republic than the alternative would have been. So, um, so... I mean, you know, I don't disagree with that. Um, but to, let's unpack some of that, though, because I, I do think our listeners are probably wondering, like, what shenanigans could possibly take place, right? Because when, with the counting of the with the Electoral College meeting on um, December 14th, there were also some Trump electors who met in the uh, states where Biden had clearly won, um, who, you know, sort of held themselves out as, as casting their votes in favor of Trump that they are presumably sending to Congress. What happens to those slates? Well, that's the key point. That is exactly the key point. And and just to make it clear, we have never had this situation arise uh, in history because we did have, you know, contested rival slates, as you and I know well and have mm-hmm. talked about in Hayes-Tilden way back in 1876. But that was before the statute that operates, which was passed mm-hmm. 10 years after Hayes-Tilden, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, but it's never been tested. Um, the only time there was ever a rival submission was in 1960 involving Hawaii's electoral votes. This was Nixon versus Kennedy, 1960. <coughs> but Hawaii was irrelevant to who was going to win an electoral college majority. Kennedy had that whatever way Hawaii went. And Nixon, who was the presiding officer of the special joint session of Congress, um, said, hey, you know, I've got these two competing submissions, one in favor of me, one in favor of Kennedy. Can't we just go ahead and, and count the ones in favor of Kennedy? So he was asking the Congress to do something that was against his own self-interest. It was sort of a gesture of goodwill. And there was no objection to that. 
So, you know, so the statute was never tested then. It was by unanimous consent they went ahead and count, counted the Kennedy votes. So this is going to be the first time where we're going to see these rival submissions from multiple states, probably starting with Arizona because the Congress deals with it alphabetically, you know, running through Wisconsin, I think, if they, if I understand the press reports correctly. And, you know, whether there ends up being five or six of them, they're, you know, again, th this attempt is going to fail because Biden has enough votes in the Senate to withstand this effort. But the procedural maneuvers that take place matter, I think, frankly, on what Vice President Pence does in his role as the Senate president, who's the presiding officer of this joint session. Because the statute, quite frankly, is unclear as to exactly what's supposed to happen when Pence says that he's in possession of these two alternative submissions. Now, it's you know clear from your perspective and my perspective in reality and law that one is valid and one is invalid. The ones for Biden are valid. <laughs> These alternative ones have no official status whatsoever. And can I, but, can I just chime in here to point yeah. out too that the constitutional text says that Congress counts the votes. And one of the things that um, you've opened my eyes to in, in recent weeks is that that language is probably should be construed narrowly, right? Like that, that Congress, um, really doesn't have the authority to disregard the Biden electors where they are uh, properly given in, in favor of uh, the Trump slate, right? There's nothing to, to say, like they, they, they have none of the sort of official, uh, imp, uh, like anything official to signify that they're from the state. The governor didn't sign it. The secretary of state didn't, you know, acknowledge. There's nothing connected to these slates to indicate that they have the support of the state that they are purporting to represent. And I think that's a really important um, point here, uh, particularly since, you know, Congress's role here is supposed to be very narrow. They're supposed to count the votes. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and, I, and, I, and thanks for saying that. I mean, I think, you know, if we're trying to be honest attorneys, trying to understand the rule of law, whether we like it or not, because I'm not a particular fan of states' rights federalism, um, because, you know, as you and I have talked about, states' rights has been used in a very abusive way throughout American history to to make a severe understatement. But, but nonetheless, the Constitution does have, you know, a structure of states' rights and federalism built into it. And in this case, that was true for purposes of the Electoral College and the, and the presidential election. And, and what that meant was states determined who their electors were as a matter of state law, and then they sent that to Washington, D.C. But it wasn't Congress's job to second guess, you know, the state's own appointment of their electors. They were supposed to figure out, okay, you know, are these, you know, is the package we're receiving counterfeit or is it real? Right. <laughs> Basically. And as long as it's real, meaning it's really coming from the government of, you know, Arizona, that's the end of the matter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, But that's an old-fashioned mindset. And the modern mindset is to try to get to the truth and to uphold voting rights. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, Trump has got this conspiracy theory. So what's what's particularly galling is he's trying to wrap himself in the language of voting rights. Right. I mean, oh, gosh. And, 
Uh, to quote Leah Littman, all of this is to enforce the protections of the Voting Rights Act, right? <laughs> she famously says all the time. Um, and it's and so, so funny because, you know, to the extent that it is about this truth-seeking function, right? Didn't we do that? This has been, <laughs> like, can we point to the litigation, if anything? Like, the litigation has been awful, but can we point to it as, you know, to the extent that this is about truth, we know the truth. This has been litigated. Right. So the floor of Congress is actually, you know, if anything, this enables Congress to more fully fulfill its role. Right. Because we know the truth. It's been litigated extensively. If anything, Congress can go into this function with absolute certainty that they're making the right decision. Um, it's yes. just that Trump is, is litigating and he's pushing this and he's challenging everything until he, the result changes. And that's just simply that's not how it works. Right. Although, you know, I, I caught only a little bit of the hearing that the Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, you know, held as chair of the com relevant committee this week. I don't know if you caught any of it, but 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 the line that he was um, articulating, as well as a, as some of his Republican colleagues um, was, well, who knows what the truth, you know, there, you know, you know, Senator Hawley said, well, my constituents all believe that it was fraud. And they're nice, reasonable people. So, you know, there must be something to it if they believe it. I mean, it's again, it's it's terrible. But it's like you, you used the perfect metaphor before. You said, you know, there's this cliche where there's smoke, there's fire. Here there's all this smoke with no fire. There's no underlying problem. But they've created this confusion and, and cloud of distrust. And now they're trying to exploit that as a reason for saying, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if one of the arguments on January 6th is, let's just throw out all the votes from these states because we don't know what the truth is. Right, right. And let's be clear, and, and I'll keep beating this drum, there's no reason for that to happen. <laughs> no, of course not. Georgia, of course Georgia not. is not a democratic state. Like, <laughs> if anything, the fact that this is coming from states that are... Um, uh, different in terms of the political parties that run them. Um, if anything, that should lend more credence to the the fact that this can be trusted. The process, it worked. It played itself out. Um, we have a president and January 6th, Congress's job is just to simply confirm that. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I honestly believe that, buckle your seatbelt, we are in it for the long haul. It won't be until noon on January 20th where we have any sense that we can breathe and say, wow, what a ride. Right. Like, I, I still think that post January 6th, you know, we will still see probably litigation and uh, various arguments made in a number of forums challenging these election results. Right. Um, and, and, and to that point, um, you know, I happened to listen to another podcast this week that done by the Lawfare uh, website, which they do great work, as, as I, I know you know, and I suspect many listeners know. Um, and they actually had a podcast on on this topic, and they were spinning out different scenarios. And 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 one of the ones that I've written about is if if you know if somehow the counting process gets mired in argumentation to the point where it doesn't finish, then the, the again one thing that we know to be absolutely true is. Um, the 20th Amendment says the current terms of the president and the vice president end at noon on January 20th. That is constitutional law. No ambiguity about that. 
But there have been these things, including which I've written about, about, well, what happens if the count is incomplete and you need an acting president? And I've talked about the possibility of Speaker Pelosi being in, you know, able to become acting president in that circumstance because the statute that calls for the line of succession, I guess it's, you know, line of succession, uh, says that, you know, next in line is the Speaker of the House if she, you know, chooses to resign her speakership and, and her seat in Congress. Um, but you may know that there is this argument that that statute is unconstitutional because Article 2 of the Constitution says it has to be an officer uh, who is next in line. And officer on that theory is a member of the executive branch, whereas members of Congress are not officers. I don't know if that's right or not. I actually think it's beside the point for a really crucial reason. Um, But there is this talk about, well, if you get to noon in January 20th and we still don't know, it's not Speaker Pelosi, it's Secretary of State um, Mike Pompeo who becomes acting president. Um, and, and so here, and the only point I want to make, because I don't think this is, this is worth that much, because none of this is really going to happen, and this is you know, in, the, in the land of the, uh, of, of the pure speculation, but, but, but because it's a point of law that I think deserves some clarity, and this is actually a point that the folks on the Lawfare podcast also made, the 20th Amendment, which governs the end of presidential terms and the beginning of the new term and what happens if the election is not complete, does not use the word officer. It uses the word person. Mm-hmm. So Congress can designate the person who gets to be acting president if the election is incomplete. And so even if it's true in the case of presidential death, tragically, or disability, meaning that you have to go to somebody next in line under Article 2 and the officer clause, you know, even if there's a different rule in that context, that rule does not apply in the 20th Amendment context. And so the statute is valid in the 20th Amendment context regardless of the other context. I know it's a little tricky, but that does mean that, you know, again, if we, if we were to have an acting president situation, in my judgment, it really would be acting President Pelosi and not acting President Pompeo. But I really hope that we're not worrying about this at noon on January 20th and that the meeting on January 6th, you know, is ceremonial and formalistic and runs smoothly. And so all of this other stuff is just a sideshow. So I actually have a random sort of historical fact that <laughs> 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 that I was I, I was thinking about in the context of my book. So. Um, when when um, Pope was elected, I believe it was Pope, 1849, um, Inauguration Day, uh, happened on a Sunday. And he doesn't work on Sundays. So we actually had a <laughs> one-day president who uh, was the, it was Bourbon Dave Atchison. And he uh, was the, uh, he was a senator. And he was the, uh, what, what what's the officer called? Who, the Senate pro- Pro tem, pro tempore, senator pro tempore. Yes. So he was a senator. He wasn't a a member of the executive branch. And he was uh, president for one day. Really? (laughs) Yes. I did not know that. Yes. You know, I thought. um, He has his own presidential library. Um, It is in Atchison, uh, Kansas, um, because he was involved with the uh, 
all of the violence surrounding Kansas, Nebraska, because he was uh, pro-slavery. And so he took a whole bunch of one-day Missourians, because he was from Missouri, and they went into Kansas and they registered to vote because they had same-day voter registration and they swung the elections. Um, I know that so, story. I yeah, just didn't and, he's, know. Yeah, and yeah, he settled yeah. a town there called Atchison, um, Kansas. Uh, even though I don't, I don't know if he ever actually lived there. <laughs> like, that's where his presidential library is. <laughs> wow. But because I've a, said so, <laughs> so, then I owe people a mea culpa because I've said we've never had an acting president situation. Oh, and maybe well, I guess that's true under the Twentieth Amendment because this was obviously before the Twentieth Amendment. So maybe I'm technically correct. But I, you know, I know we've had obviously the vice president have to step in in a case of you know an assassination, obviously, unfortunately. But the, I. The funny thing is... Why wasn't that, there a vice president? Oh, because that term had ended also, yeah, and so there was nothing... That, that yeah. term had ended also. And, and also keep in mind that uh, most historians uh, dispute his claim to the one-day presidency. So that's so you're probably still... Like, you're extra right, because mo uh, most historians don't agree with him. Although, he did sign some papers in connection with the inauguration in that role. So he did do some official acts as one-day president. Wow. Wow. Well, that's quite a story. It, it, um, that, <laughs> there are so many reasons why I enjoy our, our time <laughs> talking together on our podcast. Um, you know, and, and maybe we should, since this will probably be our last podcast of the year, it, 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 it's time to reflect on, on that. But, but, you know, one of the many reasons that I just value our friendship and our scholarly collaboration together is, you know, the joint historical interest that we've mentioned before and the fact that you can draw from your knowledge and scholarship and insights you know that and and put that on the table it's just a blessing so thank yeah, you yeah no that. definitely um i have learned so much i'm, I'm glad you talked me into this because i remember when you mentioned hey let's do a podcast i was like is he crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah here we are almost a year later um yeah, yeah. And, and i think that I, I like to think that we helped with the public discourse around really important issues because um, this has been a year like no other. And so um, clarity is important and people need information and they need uh, just sort of rational people. I like to think that we are rational people um, breaking down legal issues that can be complex and confusing. And, you know, it's so it's interesting because I, I do think that the better information and education around elections would have served us well this past election cycle. But I also can't fault everyday people for not knowing because there's just so much to know. There's so much information out of it, out there. And I think sometimes we take it for granted because we study it for a living. But um, I do think that it's, it's really been an honor to, to be a vehicle for you know information about something so important. So I'm glad we were able to provide this service and, and, and thanks for you know convincing me to do this. I will always <laughs> be in your debt for that. Well, no, thank you. I, you know, I, I also would like to think that our conversations have been enriching. They certainly have been for me and for each other, and I hope for our listeners. And, and, and again, I hope they've been a model of, of constructive dialogue, um, of obviously points of agreement, points of disagreement, points of growth. I think we've, at least I know I've grown over the year. Um, mm -hmm. So this has been a great gift uh, and um, it's not going to end. I, I certainly hope. I mean, again, we're we're going to have to come back and 
and see what this January 6th meeting actually looked like. And then we're going to have to think about serious reforms because you especially have put on the table the need to not lose the moment and not forget about the need for reform. Reform, (laughs) right? Remember the voters. That needs to be the battle cry. So it's going to be a different dynamic uh, in the new year when we come back. uh, But I look forward to ongoing conversations and dialogue and growth with you. Sounds good. Absolutely. Happy holidays to you and your family. Happy holidays to you and your family as well. Thank you, Fernita. Mm -hmm. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.